Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the BFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Marco Grasso about the new book, From Big Oil to Big Green, Holding the Oil Industry to Account for the Climate Crisis. How big oil can transform itself into big green through reparation and decarbonization to rectify the harm it has done through fossil fuels. In From Big Oil to Big Green, Marco Grasso examines the responsibility of the oil and gas industry for the climate crisis and develops a moral framework that lays out its duties of reparation and decarbonization to ally, ally the harm it has done. Well, Marco, welcome to the show. Hello. So how are you? How are you? How was your week? I'm fine. My week was, uh, well, yeah, is, I'm, I'm based in Italy, in Milan, and it's pretty hot in these days, uh, unusually hot. And so maybe disconnect a bit with, uh, with the, the story of climate change. Um, the positive thing of this week is that yesterday I went to, to speak to high school students about this uh, um, let's say, the climate crisis and the implication of the climate crisis. And this is particularly, uh, I, like, I like doing this because uh, I like to, to talk to, to, to young people of these things because I think that they are in charge of the future. So um, uh, it's a glimmer of hope, let's say. Oh, wow. Interesting. So can, can you tell us a bit more of what you do? I'm working, I'm a university professor, I'm working on basically on the policy, politics, on the governance of, of uh, climate change. I've been working on this for more than 20 years and um, basically um, I, in the last, let's say, five years, I, I focus mostly on the role of the um, oil industry in uh, role and responsibility of the oil industry in in, uh, in the climate crisis 
And this is basically the, the theme, the major theme of my new book, which was published a couple of weeks ago by the MIT Press, titled Big Oil, uh, From Big Oil to Big Green, Holding the Oil Industry to Account for the Climate Crisis. And how did you get interested in studying uh, climate uh, and uh, also governance? Uh, I think that... Uh, um, uh, I was, even as a child, I was all, always very interested in, in, in the weather. So that's <laughs> probably that's one reason I was not, not really in the, in the dynamics of the weather, but in the, let's say, in the impacts of the weather, the rainy day or the sunshine or fog or snow or whatever. And then I studied also, uh, my first degree is in economics, and so I studied um, uh, this issue related to global commons, uh, uh, public goods, uh, global resources. And so when I realized uh, that the atmosphere is actually possibly the biggest global commons that we have, I, uh, um, I put together these two different uh, uh, strands of interest of mine and uh, I quite naturally realized that climate change, uh, uh, the the, the social aspects of, of climate change were uh, basically my, my cup of tea. And what would you say to our student listeners and early career researchers that can be interested in studying the governance of climate change? I think that there's a lot of work to do on this, uh, especially uh, in terms of changing the current patterns of transitioning to a, a less carbon intensive uh, energy system, for instance. So there's a lot of room for working on this. This is super interesting. And so I would advise both young researchers and, and people who are or younger people who are thinking of what to, to do in the future and who have an uh, interest in, 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 in putting their, their, their brain, their intelligence, their uh, they are themselves into something really important for the future of the planet and also possibly for, for themselves to, to engage with these uh, arguments. Uh, they are super interesting and super important, I, I think, for all of us. So your latest book is From Big Oil to Big Green, holding the oil industry to account for the climate crisis. So how did you come to writing it? Um, I happened to run into a very uh, interesting scientific article. I think it was back in 2015 or 16. Uh, it, the article was written by uh, Rick Hedy uh, of the Climate Accountability Institute and, and came out in, in the uh, scientific journal Climatic Change in 2014. Uh, um, to cut a long story short, basically, it says that uh, just uh, 100 uh, major carbon producers, 100 oil and gas companies contributed to three quarters of 75% uh, of uh, global industrial emissions. And uh, this article uh, closed by putting forward an interesting question, why? Uh, what could be the, the implication of this? Uh, there's a lot of room for 
drawing the ethical, political, economic implication of this. And this sort of, of uh, question triggered my uh, interest uh, in, in this subject. And then I, I, I looked around and I figured out that there was very, very few uh, scientific work done on, on this topic. And so I basically engage myself on, on, on this and I uh, work on this uh, uh, mostly, let's say, full time for the last uh, five years or so. And it was a very interesting journey because I, uh, let's say, I was, uh, I was working on the governance of climate change mostly from the international, uh, the status perspective and, and focusing on these uh, very peculiar agents, the oil and gas uh, uh, were the oil and gas companies uh, has literally um, uh, completely changed my perspective on this topic, and uh, um, and it was a really interesting, uh, let's say, scientific journey for me because I started actually uh, not knowing uh, almost anything about the, the oil industry, and now I'm, I'm sort of an expert on, mm-hmm. on this uh, on this on this word, which is a very interesting and very fascinating, so to speak, word. And you have to, for instance, to get familiar with the, the numbers, the trillions of dollars, which was, to me, at, at the beginning, was difficult to, 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 to think in terms of trillions. It's something that escaped my mind. So I, I, I had to get familiar with uh, uh, the, the, the specificities of, the, of this word. And it, it was nice. It was uh, uh, scientifically nice. It was uh, very rewarding as well. All right, so let's delve into your book. And can we start with the very basics? So could you describe what is a big oil? Big oil is uh, indeed is the, the, the largest uh, oil uh, and gas companies. And I focus only on oil and gas uh, because uh, uh, coal companies are to some extent uh, a bit different from oil and gas. But it's not only uh, oil and gas companies. It's also all the world that surrounds the possibility of these companies to, to thrive in, in our current socio-political, socio-economic system. And I'm speaking of, I don't know, these chunks, these pieces of uh, politics, uh, uh, academia, research, uh, media and communication. So this uh, block that... Uh, um, basically um, makes it possible for the oil and gas companies to, 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 to do business again in, 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 uh, in, in our world, in, this, uh, in a world threatened by a, and then a sort of uh, undisputable climate crisis. So big oil is not just the oil industry, it's all this, uh, let's say, complex that uh, revolves around the oil industry. The oil industry is the center of this uh, world, which is uh, uh, built upon other pieces of our society. Uh, I don't know, political authorities, uh, the financial system, as I said before, the media systems, um, research, uh, um, technology, and so forth. And how did this industry get its start? What do you mean exactly about but by how it get started? So when and how and who were the initial players who really 
made this uh, industry happen and really got it integrated into our daily lives? I think that is quite impossible to say. It is usually the uh, standard oil of, of uh, John Rockefeller, who was the first, uh, let's say, oil major. But it's quite impossible to uh, mark a specific moment in, in which this, this industry got so ingrained in our society. I think that it is a, a mm. continuous process, uh, which uh, I would say uh, started in, in, the, in the current terms, in, in, in the shapes that we, we know now, it started in Earth uh, after, uh, I would say, the Second World War, more or less. Started, of course, from the uh, major oil companies in, in the large in the United, based in the United States, and then in Europe, which originally was a, a, a word made only by private companies. Now, instead, it turned out to be a, a word dominated also by national oil companies of uh, oil-rich state, uh, like the Gulf state, or oil-seeking state like China, the Gulf state, or Russia, for, 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 for that matters, or uh, oil-seeking uh, countries like China, uh, which in fact uh, have major players on the field. So it, uh, this change, this, this uh, structural change in the oil industry happened let's say, starting from the 70s of the last century, when the national oil companies um, got uh, center stage in, in, the, in, the, in the oil world. And how does this industry contribute to the change in our climate? Well, in terms of emission, as I mentioned before, their contribution is enormous. Of course, I, I refer to their contribution in terms also of what are uh, defined scope three emissions, uh, which uh, means emissions associated uh, also to the products that they sell the global uh, economy. So the fossil fuels that they sell to the global economy. Uh, just 20 of these uh, major players on which uh, uh, I focus contribute for uh, more than 30% of global emission, uh, especially, as I said before, through the products uh, they sold to the markets. So their causal contribution is uh, enormous. Uh, as uh, I said at, be, at, the, be, at the beginning, uh, just 100 uh, major uh, oil companies uh, contributed to three quarters of, uh, of global emissions. So it's a lot. We know who are these, these guys one by one. It is truly staggering to think that only, well, uh, not only, but uh, 20 or 100 uh, players are really the ones who are driving the most emissions, it's just so interesting. It is, and it is even more startling that there are, uh, there are real, the real, let's say, elephant in the room of uh, 
the global climate debate, uh, global, global climate negotiations and so forth. Just to make an example, uh, you know that the, we have this uh, uh, framework convention on climate change, which uh, uh, has uh, uh, this conference of the parties every year, uh, the, the, the famous or infamous uh, COP, the COP. The last one was in Glasgow in November 2021. Um, to, 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 be, to be clear, uh, what, what I want to say is that just in 2019 in Madrid at COP25, an official uh, UNFCCC document there to mention the uh, incredibly hot word fossil fuels. So that's uh, just a, an uh, indication of the grip of the power that they have, not only on our life, but, but also on uh, all uh, issues surrounding uh, negotiation, debate, and whatever, surrounding climate change. And that's also an explanation why there is so limited uh, work. Now it's uh, on, on, on the role of the oil industry in climate change. Now, actually, it is... Uh, uh, increasing in, in all, I would say, scientific domains, but uh, it is surprisingly limited compared to the um, issues at stake. So despite just knowing who are the main players, how and in which ways did this, this industry help sort of drive this climate crisis without being confronted? Uh, I would like to point out that uh, so far, uh, speaking of their mission, we basically spoke, I basically spoke only of their, let's say, uh, cause of responsibility. Uh, to take a step further, I would uh, add that these uh, uh, companies uh, or the, for, for that matter, the, the, the entire industry has a moral responsibility, which uh, is based on the fact that they knew uh, the implication of their uh, products for the for the for for the climate, and uh, uh, that they had the capacity of changing their business, but they didn't because it was more profitable to stay where they were. And another, and I'm going back to your question. Another another issue is that they uh, uh, funded, orchestrated and uh, uh, framed a very sophisticated campaign uh, starting from the 90s, at least a very sophisticated campaign of denial. And this basically uh, worked, uh, was very effective. And through this campaign of denying first climate change and then their role in climate change, they could sort of uh, escape any condemnation or any responsibility. They tried to shield their responsibility for climate change, uh, uh, blaming the consumer. So uh, they say basically something like, uh, uh, we are just providing, we are just supplying a good that consumers are demanding. We are not uh, the main responsible of, of this story. The responsible are those who are demanding and using fossil fuels. Mm. And so uh, by doing so, uh, basically they, um, could escape any accountability and 
successfully um, escape their responsibility for the, the climate crisis. Instead, I believe that they sort of uh, build, uh, build up around us as consumer a very carbon intensive system. And I think that it is very uh, difficult, very uh, onerous for us as consumer to escape this sort of uh, carbon trap in which we are, uh, the oil industry has, has digged uh, our world in. But also because these companies and this whole industry is just so big, it's very difficult to oppose it, isn't it, from activism point of view, for example? It is, it is your right. It is very difficult to oppose them. They have a uh, very close connection with uh, uh, politics, with the political authorities at various levels. It is very difficult to challenge their different forms of, forms of power. They, they have material power, they have discursive power, they have institutional power. And so it is very challenging for let's say, the civil society, for people to, 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 to contest the, the role of the oil industry. But something is changing, uh, uh, as you very likely are, uh, are familiar with, you know. Uh, these uh, climate, global climate movements are uh, really a threat for the, for, the, for the industry. There's an interesting example yeah, uh, I this um, um, document that was leaked, uh, uh, BP, the British Petroleum is a, a, a British oil giant, uh, um, which I guess in 2020 uh, organized a sort of strategic meeting be between a group of, uh, let's say, stakeholders. And uh, from this meeting, uh, there's available online a, a, a leaked document, which basically says that the thing that they, the oil industry, at least BP, um, fears the most for their future is the uh, pressure, the contestation coming from young people organized in uh, in uh, climate movements. So uh, I think that uh, they are really feeling the pressure uh, of this of this. Uh, new awareness, especially of young people, for uh, their role and responsibility of the climate crisis. And, and this, uh, it's uh, why at, at the outset of, of this uh, talk, I, I said that I'm so happy of, that, yes, I have the opportunity to, 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 to go to speak to high school students about this thing, because I truly think that they are the hope of uh, change. So your main argument in the book is that we need to hold this uh, company, the industry, morally responsible for the climate crisis. So can you expand a little bit by what do you mean? Yes, I mentioned before that uh, their causal responsibility is quite clear because they contributed three quarters of global industrial emissions. And, but there's a, a further step of responsibility which is more responsibility uh, and moral responsibility is more stringent than causal responsibility because it implies the awareness, the knowledge on the, per, on, on the side of the perpetrator. And uh, uh, in this regard, I think, as I, as I uh, briefly said before, that there are a 
few morally relevant facts that clarify uh, the and justify the moral responsibility of uh, uh, oil companies. And these facts are first that they knew, they were aware of the repercussions, of the implications of burning their products for the climate system. So first morally relevant fact, awareness. Second morally relevant fact is that despite the, the, this uh, awareness, they behave business as, you, as, as, as usual because uh, they didn't change their behavior because it wasn't probably it still is a more profitable uh, um, going on with uh, fossil fuels. The third morally relevant fact is that, that they had the capacity to decarbonize their business, to clean their business. They, for instance, the American oil industry um, back in the 90s uh, had most of the patents on solar technology they got a lot of money, like $5 billion from the U.S. government for developing and uh, for studying and developing uh, solar technologies. But basically, they didn't mm. because it was more profitable to go on with fossil fuels. And then the fourth uh, more relevant fact is that, uh, again, I mentioned this before, is that they organized, uh, funded and orchestrated and framed and pushed and whatever, this uh, uh, incredibly sophisticated and incredibly effective denial campaign. And this fact, these facts basically testify to their, that they did, uh, that they did uh, what they did because uh, despite the fact that they knew they had the intention to this for, their, for the sake of their profits or their revenues for their shareholders and so forth, and this, uh, uh, furthermore, basically paralyzed, especially the denial part of this, of their moral responsibility, paralyzed climate uh, policy for almost uh, 30 years. So basically, we lost 30 years of action because of this uh, paralysis uh, skillfully engineered by the, the oil industry. So what are the ways that you envisage we could hold these industries accountable? I think that uh, we need to create awareness and uh, um, about the first about the, the their role. First, actually, no. First about the dangerousness of, of fossil fuels. Their role, I mean, the oil industry role in, in, uh, in, in managing in, uh, fossil fuels and pushing fossil fuels all over the world and therefore in the climate crisis. And, uh, um, and make this awareness uh, the more widespread possible. It is like that, as as if we, as people, as civil civil society, uh, uh, have granted the oil industry a sort of social license to operate, uh, with uh, a dangerous but uh, indeed extremely useful for, for for humanity product. But we could remove this social license. We, 
civil society could remove this uh, uh, social social license to operate to the to the industry if the industry uh, despite the evidence of the climate crisis uh, intends to to go on uh, to flood uh, our planet again with fossil fuel and unfortunately it seems that things uh, are not going very well because uh, a couple of weeks ago came out a very interesting uh, um, piece of an investigative journalist from The Guardian about the so-called carbon bombs, which means carbon project with, uh, developed by the oil industry, which have the, uh, uh, in their entire life have uh, uh, the potential of release, uh, um, if I'm not wrong, uh, more than 1 billion tons of CO2. And uh, unfortunately, there are already 160 of these carbon bomb projects around the world. Yeah, and 60% of these carbon bombs are uh, already operating. And the, the, the thing is that uh, the emission associated to these 160 carbon bombs are equivalent to 10 years of uh, uh, emissions of, of China. So it's a lot, really a lot. And despite all the pledges that the oil industry is making uh, of becoming net zero by 2050, uh, basically all uh, major oil, oil companies uh, made these pledges, they are developing new oil and gas fields, this incredible, incredible uh, number of, uh, of carbon bombs. And this is really scary, I guess. And this testifies also to the fact that uh, their pledges and their words are not uh, always so genuine. And with respect to the public, do you see a lot of myths and disinformation on this topic? Yes, there was and there still is a lot of disinformation. There was, uh, and this is the, let's say, the, the uh, legitimate disinformation is the legitimate child of the denial and disinformation campaign that the oil industry uh, realized in the last uh, uh, decades. And unfortunately, I would say that the, 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 the level of disinformation is, is still quite high. Maybe now we are talking of something even more sophisticated, these greenwashing uh, campaigns, this denial, this delay campaign, greenwashing, like, again, blaming the consumer, uh, um, selling themselves as, um, I mean, selling uh, um, oil, companies, oil companies are selling themselves as part of, of, uh, of the solution. And they claim that there's no possibility of any kind of uh, ecological or energy transition without them. And um, uh, all these uh, uh, initiatives uh, um, are still pieces of disinformation which are uh, actually I think unfortunately still very very relevant because it is uh, all these uh, campaigns are uh, carried out through complacent uh, media system and this is another undeniable fact about the oil industry they are very able to, to use to play with the media system for uh, uh, protecting and promoting and further their, their interest. And unfortunately, their interest is still in making money from, 
from fossil fuels, I guess, despite uh, all these claims of, of, of getting greener or uh, being part of the solution of planting billions of trees around the world, as many companies are actually um, said, uh, we are more or less there. Because if you go to look into their uh, industrial plans, in the, in, especially in their, let's say, short to mid-term industrial plans, you see that all of these companies have still uh, plans to produce uh, more fossil fuels, more oil, more gas, and more whatever. They, of course, they say that in the, in the future, uh, they will rely on the so-called uh, negative emission technologies, things like uh, direct air capture, things, machines that basically, to put it simple, that suck uh, um, CO2 from the atmosphere, which exists, technology which exists, uh, but which, uh, first, we don't know if uh, uh, it will exist at scale at scale for, for getting to this net zero at 2050. And second, it's still very expensive. I think that it's still about $1,000 per uh, ton of extracted CO2 from the atmosphere. So in my, in my opinion, it would be easier and less expensive, paradoxically, <laughs> not to, to, to put greenhouse gases in the atmosphere in the, in the first place. Uh, rather than uh, sucking them out uh, <laughs> afterwards. So should the uh, oil industry uh, pay some sort of reparations to affected communities? Yes, I think so. And I think also that, that this is the most uh, distinctive and original uh, contribution of my, of my book, because uh, in my knowledge, um, there's no other work so far that uh, advance uh, and justify this, uh, I call it a duty of reparation based on their moral responsibility. Um, and uh, I actually tried in the book also to quantify this uh, duty of reparation, uh, considering the so-called social cost of carbon, which means the, uh, as the name says um, the general burden then society uh, shoulders uh, um, due to the um, climate uh, impacts basically mm. uh, this is a I think the single most important figures about climate change and uh, it's also very politicized one because for instance the Trump administration, which uh, was not very friendly to, to, to climate policy, put it at, at $3 per tons, which is very low. Uh, and one of the first uh, uh, provision of the Biden administration uh, was to put it at, um, I think, $60. And now they are thinking of raising it to $150. At any rate, the scientific community uh, suggests that a sensible social cost of carbon would be roughly around $90 to $100 per ton. So I used $90 per ton and multiplying there 
1998-2015 uh, cumulative emission by the social cost of carbon uh, gives uh, staggering sums. And so uh, I uh, attributed them some portion of this staggering sum for calculating these uh, reparations uh, based on a sort of ranking in terms of their role of climate change. I divided these 20 companies into, let's say, high requirement companies. Those who, for instance, are actively participated in, in denial and so forth. Mm -hmm. Medium requirement companies and the low requirement companies based also on the wealth of, their, of the countries in which they are headquartered and, and so forth. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of money in any case, even if you, if you cut it down to a portion of this uh, morally sound, let's say, social cost of carbon multiplied by the carbon emission. I'm actually working on, a, on, a, on, a, on a, more on this because I think that this is the most distinctive part of, of this work and um, working on, a, on an article with uh, uh, a scientist, an American scientist, uh, basically the one who um, digged into the archives to uh, uh, put out the figures of this 2014 paper on the contribution of carbon major. And in this paper, we are applying a, a different approach to um, um, calculating the reparation owed by the uh, largest oil industry uh, to the victims of climate change. And despite the Using a different perspective, the sums are again in in the, in, in, in the trillions. So they uh, have a moral duty to uh, uh, pay reparation to the victims of climate change. This is very important because uh, the other duty that they have is to clean their business, to decarbonize their business. But I think that uh, important as it is, the second duty, the the the, the the duty of reparation is even more important, more urgent. So what kind of conversations and changes in policy do you think we require to make some of these uh, uh, come true, really? Uh, the my book is divided into three uh, parts. The, the, the first part basically establishes the cause of responsibility and outlines these more relevant facts. The second part is about uh, building uh, a, a usable, let's say, notion of responsibility and the consequent duties of reparation and decarbonization for the oil industry. The third part is all about this uh, uh, point that you raised, how to make this, uh, uh, let's say, feasible. Uh, I think that here we have to work at a different level, as I uh, briefly mentioned before. We have to work uh, on, a, on, on a level, uh, let's say, that aims to create uh, the, uh, the knowledge about the dangerousness of fossil fuels, the, the role of the oil industry, and so forth. And this action is... Uh, mostly should be mostly carried out by a group of agents that I named in, in the book uh, 
primary agent of destabilization. And by this, I mean a uh, charismatic leader by like uh, Greta Thunberg, by like Pope Francis, Pope, <laughs> Pope Francis, who in fact are uh, mobilizing people around the climate crisis, about the role of the Olympics uh, and the climate crisis and so forth. And social movements, climate movements are the primary agents which uh, uh, have, have a very important role in, in spreading the, uh, let's say, uh, what these charismatic individuals um, are are, are telling us charismatic individuals are not only limited to, uh, and of course, to Greta Thunberg and the Pope, but also scientists who are able to speak to the public, like I don't know, uh, Michael Mann in the United States, uh, like McKibbin, uh, McKibbin, another, uh, another, another people of, of this kind who are actually able to speak and to engage the people on this issue. And these are all these, these charismatic individuals and social movements who spread their words and their uh, messages uh, are, in my opinion, uh, these primary agents. And then on this, uh, let's say, fertilized ground, there are other operational agents who, which uh, should be are in charge actually of uh, uh, actually materially destabilizing the oil industry. And I'm speaking of, say, the financial institutions who are divesting from the fossil fuels. This is another big issue for them, mm. putting all the money from their, from their business, which is a very uh, um, financial intensive business, by the way. Um, or, or political authorities usually um, um, local political authorities who are banning the production of fossil fuels from their from their territory, like the state of Hawaii or California, of one region here in Italy, Lazio, or uh, also all these. Uh, associations, these uh, uh, organizations who are actually suing uh, the oil industry. So uh, there are a number of uh, possible operational agents which, based on this fertilized ground by uh, primary agents, can actually induce or steer or force or compel the oil industry to, to, to pay reparations and to clean, to decarbonize, to clean their business. And what kind of future would you like to see? Will there be any place for oil industry? If they are genuine in, in terms of uh, actually mm. getting greener, uh, I think that there's, uh, there's a future because they have money, they have power, they have technology, they have skills, they have the, 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 the weight for being major players in the, in the transition. Uh, otherwise, uh, I'm positive. I see uh, uh, a possibility for, for them to be part of the solution, as the, as the oil industry loves to, to say. So, uh, 
Yes, we we cannot. Let's say let, let's put it this way: we cannot waste this uh, enormous uh, 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 amount of uh, competencies, technologies, wealth, skills, and so forth. We somehow have to engage them in the transition. So, what kind of discoveries in your research for your book, from big oil to big green, surprised you the most? Uh, I would go back to the to, to what I said before. It, it was the, the, the possibly the fact that this uh, issue was so so under researched. That understanding why it was so under researched was what uh, surprised me the most. Understanding the uh, exploring the uh, sophisticated, this um, skillful technique that they use for hiding themselves from uh, behind, for instance, consumer or for keeping themselves, claiming themselves out from any kind of responsibility. This was very, very surprising to see how we, actually we people couldn't see this big elephant. Uh, it's like all these, well, to, to put it in a more, in a, in a clearer way, it's like to me, after having uh, traveled this journey into the climate crisis and the oil is like if the issue of climate change is something that as as the in, in its center the oil industry and we have been talking around this topic for decades without going to or daring to go to the center of the topic this is very surprising was actually very surprising and i could understand and I also hopefully could explain why uh, this uh, happened. It was not a chance. It was not that we were blind. We were sort of steered there to to be blind. We were blinded by um, a a plan. So this whole issue, of course, it's... uh... It's not very sort of positive. Sometimes you can feel that there's a lot of doom and gloom going around the climate crisis and how we can address it. So how positive are you, really? And what would you say to really uplift people's spirits, you know, and uh, make them act, basically? Um, I'm realistically hopeful. uh, I would say that... um, let me put it this way. The best thing that we can do as individual for climate change is, of course, um, being virtuous in our, I don't know, consumption patterns and flying habits or whatever, using cars and whatever. But the most important single thing that we can do is go out there and uh, inform other people that there's something going on. So uh, sort of a local personal mobilization and this is a, the most important single thing and the message that I, I feel that uh, I have to, 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 to convey to our listeners. Uh, go out there and speak to everybody who, think, who thinks that uh, uh, the climate crisis, the climate crisis is, is is not so threatening. And speak about please speak about uh, the causes of this and the role of uh, of these agents in this. And 
engaged, became active personally. This is much more important than being uh, virtuous in terms of uh, using a, a canvas tote bag or a driving glass, which are, of course, very important, but less important than going out and speaking of this and convincing people and motivating people and acting on this. Excellent. So this has been truly eye-opening discussion and so much to think about. No, by, by the way, uh, I think that these uh, some, uh, let's say, old-fashioned environmentalists wouldn't be very, very keen to this perspective of mine <laughs> because they seem to be still stuck in the in the in the narrative of the of personal virtue. This is not actually a personal thing. This is a structure, institutional, societal thing, political thing, much more than a personal thing. Excellent. Let's hope we can see more young people doing TikToks about uh, using less uh, industry, yeah. industry, all the yeah. industry products and uh, really mobilizing uh, the crowd. Yeah. Yes. Well, so can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? Actually, um, I'm working a bit uh, on, on this uh, topic of... Uh, Reparation, because the reparation that uh, um, uh, I, for calculating reparation in a very specific and, uh, uh, let's say, um, uncontroversial way. Um, and this is a, a not easy. Uh, furthermore, I'm very interested in, the, in, the, in developing the third part of the book, this, let's say, the politics of the transition, this uh, interplay between primary agents and operational agents um, uh, and exploring the complexity of the transition, which is not, of course, only a, a matter of having the technology, of knowing that the, 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 some sources of energy are of renewable energy are, are, are even cheaper than fossil fuels. For instance, uh, we, we all know that the solar is currently the cheapest uh, energy source that humanity has ever had. And so the question would be, why don't we switch to, to renewable? So understanding what is, uh, where this process of transition is, is stuck. And I think again, that it is stuck because uh, some very powerful, important agents want, want uh, this process to be stuck. So understanding how to stabilize, to disrupt this block made uh, basically of the, of the, uh, around the fossil fuel industry. And the one more thing uh, on, on which I'm, I'm reflecting and on which I'm starting to work is that uh, it's connected to the energy transition, but it is the story of the critical minerals, which are uh, necessary components of the batteries of the energy transition which again are uh, scarce, are detained by authoritarian, mostly authoritarian uh, countries, or are buried in the deep seabed. And this is another interesting common to explore. So this is basically the thing I'm, I'm thinking uh, about and working on uh, currently. Oh, wow, that sounds super exciting. 
Yeah, this story about the, the critical minerals and the deep sea bed and the governance of the deep sea bed and the potential disruptive technologies that we have for going there and in a, in a, in a, in a place uh, um, which we, 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 are, we don't know basically what, what, what are the dynamics of the deep sea bed, what could happen if we are destroying the deep sea bed for extracting these critical minerals. We probably know more about the about Mars than the deep sea bed, and despite that, we have the, the, the technology for going six um, meters down in, in the deep sea bed and scrapping with this uh, tank uh, the, the deep sea bed for 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 extracting these uh, critical minerals, lithium, cobalt, zinc, uh, and so forth. And uh, of course, this could be the truly a bottleneck of the transition and the availability of this, of this critical mineral of these critical minerals is is um, vital for the transition and that's i think a lot of, of work to do on on this topic and what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book i have a personal website which is uh, marco grasso which is m A-R-C-O-G-R-A-S-S-O-Info, I-N-F-O. And I'm working on creating a page on the book uh, in these days on, on my website. And uh, otherwise, it's uh, I forgot to mention that this book is uh, open access from the publisher website. And so it is uh, possible to download it for free uh, from the MIT Press page uh, on the book, which is uh, easily, um, if you go on Google and say, and uh, write, uh, say, Big Oil to Big Green or Marco Grasso, MIT, uh, it pops out the, the right page from which you can freely download the book. No, oh, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to the listeners.